then I'd also invite you to turn back to Matthew chapter 4 as well. So Mark chapter 1, Matthew chapter 4. Mentioned uh, when we began our series on Mark that Mark is the, the gospel of action. He doesn't deal with long explanations of things, generally speaking, but he's the, the gospel writer who is just going event after event after event after event. And part of the purpose of Mark's gospel then is to show us that ongoing work of Jesus Christ is the servant. That, it, that, that Christ in his work as the servant is tireless. It is ongoing. And he often uses words of introduction that um, will, will take us and show us that of how quickly. We see that right away in Mark chapter 1 verse 12. The spirit immediately. So to get us the point of, yeah, this happened right after the baptism, and then right after that, and then right after that, to show us the tireless work of our Lord and Savior. So from Mark, we read verses 12 and 13. Following up then upon the baptism, upon the voice from heaven, you're my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. The Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness. And he was in the wilderness 40 days, being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals. The angels were ministering to him. I suppose it would be okay and perhaps permissible for me to assume that all of us here this morning know what those temptations are. But it perhaps is not why. So let's go back to Matthew's gospel and then read about those temptations that Mark said happened here in the wilderness by Satan. Matthew 4.1 Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you. And... On their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, Again it is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Again the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, All these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God. Him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him. And behold, angels came and were ministering to him. As far the reading of God's word. Let's again bow in prayer. Our gracious Heavenly Father, what comfort we take from these words that we read this morning from your word. Father, that we have a Savior that was like us in every way except sin. 
Father, that was tempted, Father, but overcame temptations. And Father, we thank you that we can take comfort that the Lord Jesus Christ gives us power as well to overcome the temptations that we face. And Father, we pray that we would live our lives in a way that brings him glory and honor. All this we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. The only way to understand what's really happening here is to journey back. If we only look at this as a New Testament event, we will miss the significance of what is taking place here. For Jesus is involved in much more here than simply some sort of trial for a brief period of time to find out whether or not he's, he's really capable to stand up. Whether he really has it in him or not. Much more is happening. We have to journey all the way back to the book of Genesis. We have to journey all the way back to creation. We have to go back and, and see Adam's failure. And we have to see what is happening here that as the second Adam, Christ is facing the temptations that Adam faced in the garden, but with a much different outcome. So let's first of all look at Adam's failure from Genesis chapter 3. That'll be our first point. We go back there and, and we read, do we not, of God's crowning statement. He made man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. See that, my friends. See that and hear that as the voice of God coming down from heaven. Just as we are introduced to these temptations of Jesus with that crowning statement, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Back in the garden, there is a crowning statement as well. As God looks upon man that he has made. As he looks upon the male and female that he has created. These in his own image. And God says, behold, they are very good. In fact, all that I have made, behold, it is very good. And in the midst of that proclamation, we read, Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the animals that God had made. And we read of these enticements, these temptations. Of a snake. Enticements that, that call into question. Did God really say? You know, if you eat of this, you shall become like God. If you do this, you will know good from evil. If you do this, you shall not surely die. If you 
disobey the command that you have been given, nothing bad is going to happen. There'll be no ill effects of that which takes place. Satan's temptation really fall into three categories. There, there's a physical thing because the, the, the fruit was pleasing. There was an emotional thing. We'll, we'll know good from evil. There's a spiritual aspect to it. We'll be like God. And Satan came with his temptations and humanity sins. That's what happens back there in Genesis 3, right? In, in the place of fruitful trees, in the place of abundance, in the place no matter where they turned, there was food. And they could eat it all. All except from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Of that tree, they were not allowed to eat. But it's not because you see of a lack of food. The food is in abundance. It's a garden. It's beautiful. One can't, can't even imagine what a, a garden without the effects of sin are like. If you're an observer, you'll look at the front of church and you'll say, where did the other mums go? Well, they begin to show the effects of death. you imagine living in a garden where there is no death? Nothing dies. you imagine being able to see beauty without the effects of sin? You know, we, we observe beauty now, but, it, but it's always tainted with, with our visual effect of sin. We, we really don't see red as red really is. We really don't see green as green really is. Everything we see has some sort of an effect of sin attached to it. What it must have been like, the beauty and the peace. There's animals roaming all around. In chapter 2, what did, what did Adam do? All the animals come to him and he names them all. A place of perfect peace, a place of perfect beauty, a place of perfect fulfillment. Hey, this fruit, this fruit, did God really say? And humanity Sin, the first Adam, our covenant representative, in the midst of all of that beauty, perfection, holiness, sins. He takes and he eats, and the curse and the multitude of the effects of sin begin to set in. Death begins to occur. He begins to die. Stuff 
begins to die. There's fear. There's hiding from God. There's alienation. There's bickering. There's fighting. There's blaming. And then it grows. There's weeds and thorns and thistles. And there's violence. Growing until the point of Genesis chapter 5 and 6 in which God says, No more! The thoughts of man's heart are only evil continually. A picture of the judgment, the just judgment that we are all under. The Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness. And he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals and the angels were ministering to him. In the light of Adam's failure, we turn now to Jesus' victory. His victory as the second Adam. His victory as our covenant head. Notice, first of all, the setting. We deal, first of all, with the leading of the Spirit, not the compulsion of a serpent. The Holy Spirit is the one who leads him to this event. In fact, Mark puts it, drove him into the wilderness. Now, that's not against his will. That's not the understanding to be given there. Matthew gives a, more the understanding that this is a leading. This is a, a knowledge of Jesus, an awareness of Jesus. I must go into the wilderness for I must be the servant. I must, again, subject myself to something that I, as the glorious Christ, have never had to face. Just imagine the scene that is before us. He left the glory of heaven for this. And yet there is this, this work of the Spirit that leads, that drives. No, I must go. We're reminded of that verse that comes later in the Gospels where Jesus set his face like flint towards Jerusalem. There is a purposefulness. I am going to go. I am going to fulfill the work that my Father has given to me. That is the essence of what is happening here. I am going to go and I'm going to fulfill that which I must do as the second Adam, as your covenant head. I must go to the wilderness. Secondly, note the place where he goes. It is a wilderness. It is not a lush garden. The only tree in this place is the tree that is before him of the tree of the cross. This is the, the wildness. John was in the wilderness by the Jordan. But, but it's a wilderness that pales in comparison to the desert that Jesus is now in. A place where there is no food for 40 days without eating or drinking. Jesus places himself in the hardest of all circumstances. You know, you would think, going back to Adam, why do I need to eat this fruit? I got all the fruit in the world. 
If there was one person who should have been aware, aware, able to turn away, should have been Adam. I don't need that. I don't need that. Jesus is in a wilderness where there is no food. Notice the description that Mark gives us. And he was with, note, the wild animals. See, this is the reason Mark's doing this. He's, he's repainting Eden. He's repainting Eden. Not in the beautiful, peaceful situation that Adam was dealing with, but he's repainting it as the new Eden. An Eden of wilderness. An Eden of starvation. An Eden of wildness. There are now ferocious animals. Ferocious animals that can attack at any moment. That can tear into pieces. This is the world now. There is no more Eden. The world is now the wilderness. With its lack, with its scarcity, with its lack of peace, with its lack of fulfillment, nothing satisfies, nothing fills. There is emptiness, there is void, there is wanting, there is wasting. This is where Jesus goes. But notice as well, verse 13. He's not only in the wilderness, 40 days. He's not only with the wild animals, but he is tempted by... Do you notice the difference? What happens in Genesis chapter 3? We got this snake. Satan takes on the appearance of a crafty serpent. Now, for some of you, you don't mind snakes. For some of us, we hate them. Okay? We don't even like to look at them. Right? But in God's garden, Adam has no fear of that reptile. It is a beautiful creature. See, the fear I have of that creature is the effect of sin. Adam has no fear. So God comes to him, or excuse me, Satan comes to him in a almost picturesque manner. But here, Jesus faces no crafty serpent. Here, it is Satan himself. Now, I've never seen Satan. I doubt any of you have either. We've all seen renditions of supposedly what he looks like and appears like. My guess is we're way off. My guess is he is far more grotesque than what we would imagine. This is who Jesus faces in the wilderness amongst the wild beasts. 
He's coming and facing this adversary as the second Adam. Now, yes, this is about obedience on the cross, but there's something else going on here. Satan comes with his temptations, a physical appeal. As Matthew reports to us, there is hunger in the belly of Jesus. Note, there was no hunger in the belly of Adam. But there is hunger here, real hunger. Turn these stones into bread. But do you notice the little word that gets attached in every one of these temptations? If, if you are the Son of God, if, call into question who you are. If you're the Son of God, what are you doing here in a wilderness? If you're the Son of God, why are you starving? If you're the son of God, why are you dealing with me? If you are. See, the real question is not about stones to bread. The question is really about the if. Are you the son of God? Are you the second Adam or aren't you? What are you going to do? You're going to fall like the other one did? Yeah, I heard that statement too. I heard God say, this one is made in my image. Yeah, I heard. You're his beloved son. Really? If. Turn these stones into bread. It was an emotional appeal. Jump. Jump. If you're the son of God, jump. After all, God's made promises. Did God really say? Huh. Hear, hear those lines coming back from the garden. God really say? God said, did he not? Do you think it's true? You know what's coming. You know that cross. You know you're going to have to bear the full weight of all those sins. You know what's happening. He's promising you he's going to bring you out of that hell. He's promising you that he's going to restore you to life. Well, let's test it. Before you go that journey, before you go that way, let's test it. Third, a spiritual appeal. Just worship me. Just worship me. If you fall down and worship me, no, here it is again, if, I'll give you all these kingdoms. Hey, first of all, you might say, what's the appeal in this? The appeal is a spiritual one. See, what is being asked for here is the following. If you worship me, I'll give you the hearts and souls of individuals. You don't have to go to the cross. You don't have to do that. 
This is the shortcut. This is the way around. Did God really say, God, if you eat this, you'll be like God? Now, it is not in Satan's privy to give this. But that's the whole part of the test. What is so appealing is not really an appeal because it's false. It's fake. It's putting God to a test that says, if I worship something other than God, I will find more satisfaction than the worshiping of God. If, as our second Adam, Our covenant head. Jesus declares, John 16, I have overcome the world. Why? Because he doesn't give in to any one of the temptations. He doesn't even close, come close. He doesn't even, even put... The thought in his mind. He doesn't change the words like Eve does. He simply brings out God's truth. He brings out God's word. He brings out that declaration. Stoned bread? No. God says, you shall live by every word that proceeds from my mouth. Jump off the temple? No. It says don't put the Lord to the test. Fall down and worship Satan? No. No. Worship the Lord alone. He does that which Eve and Adam should have done when that crafty serpent reaches out with the fruit of the tree and says, don't you want to eat this? No, the Lord our God has commanded us, thou shalt not eat of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And as that first Adam, they fail. But as the second Adam, Christ is victorious. The devil leaves. And we know that Christ is victorious because both Matthew and Mark remind us of what happens at the end. And the angels came and ministered to him. Do you understand that that is in essence the same as and the dove lighted upon him? This is God's means of saying well done. Well done. This is my son. Well done. Do you remember what the angels came and did in the garden? They drove Adam out. They stand with flaming swords at the entrance of the Garden of Eden. They're not ministering. Why? Because Adam failed. But Christ is ministered to. By the angels. It is God's sign of well done, son. Well done. This is my beloved son. Not only there at the baptism 
in all of its beauty and pageantry that is taking place there. In the midst of a crowd of people. But here, alone in the desert. Well done, son. And you see, as our covenant head, it is this aspect of the temptations of Christ that you and I share in. Turn with me to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. Verse 9, Romans 8, 9. You, however, you, as believers in our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you, anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life. Because of righteousness. Not your righteousness. Christ's righteousness. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you. He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead. Will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. The spirit what? Of victory. This spirit of overcoming sin. That spirit that dwelt within Christ. The spirit of Christ. Is that which Paul says dwells in you. Dwells in me. The Christian might never say. The devil made me do it. Why? Because the Christian stands in the victory of Christ. And Christ's victory here in these temptations is our victory. Why? Because he is our covenant head. Every time you face a temptation, you remember that you stand in Christ. And that Christ overcame the temptations of the devil. So can you. Not because of you, not because of your faith, not because of your strength, not because you're so wonderful, not because you're so holy, not because you're so perfect, but because Christ is. Our victory over daily sin is found in Christ. In Christ alone my hope is found. He is my strength, my life. To live each day in this world with the onslaught of temptations that surround us. We stand not in our own faith, for then we surely fail. Someone once asked Martin Luther the question, Martin, how do, how do you deal with the temptations of Satan? 
And Martin said, I'm reminded of the following. That when Satan comes knocking on the door of my heart and says, who lives there? Jesus Christ answers, I do. I do. Christ lives in you and I. The spirit of Christ dwells within us. The victory of Christ over the temptations of this world is our victory. Oh, not that we don't have to fight. That's not the point. Oh, Christ won, so I don't have to. No, the point is we fight because we know we will win. Why? Because we are in Christ. When Christ fills our lives, Satan has no entrance. The second thing is not only the fullness of Christ, but the fullness of the Word. Don't miss that each temptation is answered with God's truth. And don't forget there is a connection between the Word and truth and Christ. And the Word became flesh and dwelt amongst us. I am the way, the truth, and the life. You cannot separate a relationship with Christ from a relationship with His Word. You can't separate those two. We are told in Psalm 119 verse 11, I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against thee. I have stored up your word in my heart. I have stored up your word, your word. I have stored up Christ in my heart. What? That I might not sin against thee. That I might not give in to the temptations that Satan brings. Now we all look at one another and say, but I sin. Yes, we do. We live in the glorious victory of Christ. But we, like Paul, right, struggle. Oh, the good that I would, I do not. The evil that I do not, that I do. You realize the unbeliever doesn't have that struggle. The unbeliever could care less. There's no struggle in them. Thanks be to God. Thanks be to God you and I struggle with sin. Thanks be to God. Because that is the means. That, that, not, not the means. That, that's the sign you see in our lives. That Christ really is living and active within us. Because we do struggle with that sin. And we do come before the Father confessing our sins. Thanks be to God who gives us the victory in Jesus Christ. See, as our brother prayed, 
Hebrews reminds us of the fact that Christ knows our struggle. He knows what this business of temptation is all about. He understands our failures. He understands why we fail. He gets it. But he keeps calling and saying, find your hope in me. Stop trying to overcome on your own. Fill your life with me. And you will find the glorious victory of Christ. Not just today, but someday. Thanks be to God. A full, complete, total victory over sin, over hell, over death, over the grave. Amen? Amen.